We're going to teach out of Psalm 65 tonight. So if you want to turn over there, we'll read that. Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. When we finish tonight, I'm hoping that everybody walks out of here praising God. That's going to be the goal, is to look into this psalm, think about God, think of who he is, what he's done, and you walk out of here praising God. And hopefully telling somebody about him, praising other people, praising him to other people. This psalm, if you look at the psalms, there's about seven of them, starting at Psalm 58, leading up to this one, that all have kind of, uh, they're just hard. They're psalms of God speaking about God judging the earth. Uh, Psalm 59 is a prayer seeking deliverance from the enemies, lamenting about God's abandoning his people, a fainting heart, Psalm 61, crying out to God, Psalm 62, waiting for God, Psalm 63 is about a soul soul that's longing for God, and uh, 64 is seeking protection from the wicked. They're just, they're difficult times and supplications to the Lord. And then right following up on the heels of those, you have this psalm where it says, it starts off, praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And the title says it's a psalm and a song. The writing of this was both, uh, the best way I've had it, heard it described in the, some of the commentaries was a lyrical poem. It was meant to both be read and sung. It was a song of praise, a song of adoration. It was a, it was a celebratory psalm. Um, they're not really sure and very different views on why it was written, what was the time frame for it. Uh, it's pretty obvious if you look at the uh, verses 9 through 13 that is a the ending of it is a song of harvest it's kind of a harvest song if anybody has been driving around i saw a farmer today we're coming back from plain city pulling his truck up by the soybean field just looking at the field it's it's that time of year where we're starting to have harvest come in i cut down my little tiny bit of corn stalks and a couple pumpkins I had, and we put them out on the front porch, you know, to celebrate 
that time of year, the harvest and God's provision. And so the end of this, verses 9 through 13, is a song celebrating God's provision and his harvest. So some people think that it was meant as a song to be used for that at a time of celebration during the fall and the harvest time that we would come together and we would sing out this together as one, praising God and, and remembering the goodness of God through the difficult summer times and through the times when we've planted and sowed and toiled and now he's providing for us. Others think it may have been even used during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a fall celebration. And you'd go in and you would praise God, and it was a song that, psalm that may have been sung and used in adoration of God during that time. Nobody's exactly sure, but one thing they're sure of, it's a song of thanksgiving and praise to God's character and his behavior, who he is and what he does. If you ever want to have an encouragement to your Christian walk, you ever want to grow in your Christian walk, sit down and pull out the Bible and just start pondering through the scriptures about God's character, his nature, who he is, what he's done in this world, what he's done in past, what he's doing now, how he's changed you. I was uh, sharing with a couple guys this morning, we weren't here because we were at a celebration of something God has done in in a friend's life. And it's just radically changed their life and restored broken relationships. God is at work today just like he has been throughout all of eternity. And if you think about him, sit and ponder who he is, what he's done, his character and his nature, it will grow you deeply. There's a book uh, R.C. Sproul wrote called The Holiness of God, just studying and thinking about the holiness of God. You'll just be in awe of who he is and grow in your adoration of him and it will help you in your walk with him. So, Uh, This psalm breaks forth. It comes out of all these difficult psalms, breaks forth, and there's a sense of joy and praise as David declares the majesty of God. Life can be hard. Anybody agree? Life can be difficult. Anybody ever have hard days, difficult days, struggles, trials? It can be hard and full of struggles struggles and difficulties. But if you look at verse 1, When we turn our gaze to the God who dwells in Zion, when we think about God, when we ponder who he is, we're filled with joy and join in all of creation with praise for our great God and Savior. That's what Psalm 65 does. It turns our gaze and takes you when you're looking down, maybe looking at yourself or looking at your difficulties, looking at your situations, and it just picks your head up. And it says, look to God. I've never been up here to, to speak, and I, I see now what Bill is talking about. You look up. You look up, and you, you look at the majesty of God. You, he, that's what this psalm does. It picks your head up, and it points you to God. Praise is due to you, O God, and Zion. In the opening verse, there's a few ways that it's translated. It says in the, ver- I have the ESV here says, praise is due to you. Uh, King James says, praise waiteth for thee. Uh, the NASB says, there will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. And look, trying to figure it out myself, looking at the, I'm, I'm not a, a uh, scholar at all, but in the different commentaries and the different people discussing what this meant, the best way I could come up with was it said, there will be silence before you. Silent anticipation of praise. So praise waits 
in silent anticipation to break forth and praise God. And it says it's waiting for him in Zion. It sees that praise itself, it's kind of given us this image of praise itself awaiting an opportunity which will come over and over and over again due to the goodness of God to proclaim the glory of God. Praise silently anticipates God. And God, over and over and over and over again, acts in a way that deserves praise, doesn't he? Just think right now for just a second. I love to stop and ponder. Stop and think. What has God done in your life over the last week that is worthy of praise? He's constantly given us opportunity to praise him, is he not? Constantly. And yet we start, our gaze gets pulled down. It says, set your eyes on things above, not on things of this earth, right? The Bible says that. And if we'll set our eyes on things above and we'll start looking at God and looking at what he's done for us, we'll break forth in praise. Praise silently anticipates an opportunity to praise the Lord. In a commentary that Calvin said, the main thing to be conveyed by the psalm is that thanksgiving is due to the Lord for his goodness shown to his church and people. You know, even I work now, this is really wonderful, at a place where there's a lot of Christians, right? And yet even there, we've got a place, it's a bunch of Christians, a bunch of people that know God, a bunch of people that know his word, that trust his word, and yet they can even get discouraged. And the, the talk starts to come about, you know, the... the the world we're living in today, how difficult the world we're living in today is, the struggles that we're going through, what might happen if the government does this or if the disease does this. But Pastor Bill even preached here recently about what's the answer to all that, and that's to think about God and who he is and his sovereign control over everything, right? The main thing of this is is that thanksgiving is due to the Lord for his goodness shown to his church and his people. He's so good to us. I think, if I remember right, in uh, Pastor Bill's message when he was talking about how to overcome, you know, the, the, the trials and, and the worry that we're going through, one of the things to remember is we're meeting in a church freely right now. We're still allowed to do that. We're still allowed to openly praise him. We're still allowed to go to school and study him. We're still allowed to, in our homes, praise the Lord. We're still, God is so good to us and he's worthy of our praise we can never exhaust the praise due to god look at psalm 145 the moment we might get tired of talking about praising god or think well okay i get it i've i've talked about this i've i've praised god i've sung songs about god i've told people about him psalm 145 we can never exhaust the praise due to God. I'm just going to read all. I was going to read one, but I'll do it all. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud your righteousness. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. The very beginning, he says, what? I will extol my God and bless your name forever and ever. You'll, you'll never exhaust his praises. There'll never be a time when you've praised him enough. It says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I've already said it once and I'll say it again. We as Christians, we need to meditate on the goodness of God. I can't remember. I know I've shared it either when I was doing the Bible study, uh, the, the Sunday school, or in one of our small groups. But uh, there was a point in my life when I, early on as a Christian, and I had, the best way I could describe it was to a close friend, was I said, I feel like I've lost my faith. I feel like I, I just got saved, and I feel like, well, maybe it was all a joke, and I didn't, I got fooled. And instead of trying to go into the Bible and, and do theology first, which is what he followed with later. He did some Bible study. The very first thing he says, go home first, then come back to me. First thing I want you to do is go home and write down everything that you're thankful for to the Lord. Just spend time thanking him for his goodness to you. And then he took me into the Bible and showed me the truths of scripture. But he started with telling me to thank the Lord. Meditate on the wondrous works. You know, meditate on what God has done. Do you ever find yourself getting anxious? Do you ever find yourself getting worried? Or maybe not praising God enough? Or maybe you find yourself where, you know, my, my Christianity is just kind of not where I want it to be. And I'm guessing we could all say that. Meditate on his wondrous works. Where do we find his wondrous works? Not only in what he's done in our lives, but his, his word. Bill has already challenged us that we don't need to sleep ever. We can just read the Bible all the time, right? That's the way I'm starting to feel after the men's meetings. But that's so true, right? If your Christian walk is struggling or you feel as if, you know, I don't really grasp God or maybe I don't have an appreciation. I see here where it says that I am to praise God forever and ever, but I don't find myself doing that. I find myself not praising God. I find myself complaining or being anxious or being worried about what's going on in the world. Get up an hour earlier and meditate on the wondrous works of God found in his word. Meditate on it. Meditate on the wondrous works of God in your life. Spend time praising God. We'll never exhaust them. It says, praise the praises due to you, O God, in Zion. And I spent some time looking at that. I want to go through just that, that thought of God in Zion. You hear that term thrown around a lot. You hear that term used in Christianity. What, it, what is Zion? Well, it means a lot of things. One of the very first instances in the Bible of Zion was in 2 Samuel when David came in and overthrew the Jebusites. where They, they lived in the area which we would call Jerusalem. And he overthrew them. And he, he took over the city of what we call the city of David or Jerusalem. And that was the name, the name of that area was Zion. The name of Zion proclaims the glorious power and provision of God for his people from the very, very beginning. There's a story when, in, in the Bible when David went to take that city. 
he came up on the city and they said, you're not going to do it. You can't take this city. He says, you can't even defeat the blind and the lame people in the city. The, we're going to let the blind and the lame defeat you, right? And then he defeated the city. They, they had a very, it was an extremely well-fortified city that they, they thought there's no way anybody can break in and take this city over. And David came in and under the power of God, took over the city and he gave it to his people. God gave it to his people. It was a stronghold. And when he, when he came to take it, the, the way they put it was they said, they were so confident in the fortification that they thought his attack was a joke. They basically made a joke about David. He said, you can't do it. And the Lord proved them wrong and they conquered the city. So the very first instance that we see of Zion is God giving his people this win and battle over a stronghold that everybody thought couldn't be taken. And he made it his dwelling place. From the beginning, Zion has been synonymous with the victory of the Lord over the wicked and establishing his people. In Psalm 87, it's referred to as the city of God. In Jeremiah, it's used to describe the temple area. In Isaiah chapter 40, it's where we describe Zion is then looked at as the city of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 31, Zion's referred, used to refer to the land of Judah. In Zechariah, they use the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 60, they refer to the people of God as Zion. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it's the kingdom of heaven. And in Isaiah 52, it's a holy city. Zion is the dwelling place of God, the one who is both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, flip over there with me. First Peter chapter 2, 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verse 4, Christ is portrayed as the living cornerstone of Zion, rejected by men but precious in God's sight. In verse 5, the, the believers are compared to Christ as living stones being built up into a spiritual house, the house of Zion. It's the dwelling place of God in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone, growing into the temple of God. We, who have been called redeemed and justified by the Lord, have been part of the temple of God. This Zion is something that we are a part of. It's referring to this dwelling place of God. 
And Jesus Christ is this chief cornerstone. And then he builds this dwelling place with us. Everybody that has been redeemed, everybody that has been made new, everybody that has been added into the family of God is a part of that dwelling place. And then if you look at verse 9, or verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We've talked about this very often uh, going through Romans. We were chosen. You want to be uh, put in a mindset of praise to God? Think about this. He chose you. If you are born again, if you are a part of the family of God, if you've been redeemed, it's nothing that you've done to earn that. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You have been put into the family of God by God. And then, as, as we've heard so often, there's this, you've, you've received God, but he did choose you. And how do those things go together? Only God knows. But this praise that's due to God in Zion, this dwelling place of, God, of Zion, you are a part of that. Do you want to praise God? Think about the fact that you have been made part of this family of God that he's building, this this city of God he's building, and you're a part of it. You've been added into it. And he's chosen you to be a part of that. You ever seen anybody build a big building out of rocks? So they chip the rocks and they pick the rocks and they chip them and they put them together, right? And they pick through the pile. That's God. He's building this city. He's building his his people. He's building his holy Zion and he's taking you, he's chipping you and putting you in. You've been chosen by God to be a part of his dwelling place. Does that encourage you? I would certainly hope it would. (laughs) It encourages me to know that I've been chosen. It says, I'm a chosen race, a royal peace to the holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim his excellencies. What is the purpose of our, our election? What is the purpose of us being chosen by God? Why have we been chosen? To proclaim his excellencies. To tell people about him. Praise is due to God in Zion. And we should praise him. And we should tell the others about him. Tell others about who he is and what he's done. Proclaim the goodness of God. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we can proclaim his excellencies. And here's, and it says as well, part of this doctrine of election, this this thought that we've been chosen, says this in verse 8. Verse 7, sorry. So, for, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You know, that's a hard thing to think about. But there are those that God 
destines to disobey as well. Again, I don't understand that. But you've been chosen out, and there's those that haven't been. And I can't comprehend that. But what that should do for you is to cause you to praise him all that more. Think about this. What, what is the end result of those that weren't chosen? It says, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It talks about that stone crushing and, and destroying them, right? In the end, what happens to those that disobey? They're going to be cast into eternity and, and, and destroyed and punished in hell forever. And those that have been chosen to be a part of God's dwelling place, those of you here that have been chosen by God and you've responded in faith, that's not going to be the end result of your life. The end result of your life is to dwell with him forever in eternity. Every one of us was nothing the moment before the Lord called us to faith. Think about those stones again. God picked up those stones and put them in and built this holy temple. We're nothing until God chose us and put us into that temple. We were dead in our trespasses and sins with no hope of ever escaping the judgment to come. Then the Lord redeemed us, called us his own, and put us into his holy temple, his church. He built us up and called us to be his people. The moment, the very moment before you were born again, you were dead in your trespasses, as the Bible, the Bible uh, describes this, right? With no hope. No ability to, to do enough good to save yourselves. No way to escape the coming judgment. And the, the, the sad thing is there's some in this room right now that are in that situation right now. You've not been truly born again. You've not been added in. You've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and trusted only in him. Maybe you're still trusting in yourself. Maybe you just think it's a lie. Or maybe you're just trying to do your best, but you're not really trusting in Christ. In the end, of your life is going to be destruction. And that's sad. If you would trust in Christ and in his salvation alone, his sacrifice alone, then you'll be added into that building and God will dwell. He'll take up his dwelling place within you and you'll be guaranteed an eternal home in heaven. There's only two people in this world. Those that are Born again and those that aren't. Those that are truly saved and those that aren't. Praise God. Meditate on the fact. If you've been born again, if you've been saved, meditate on that, of what you've been rescued from. Praise him for that. We've been taken from death to life, from dark to light, from not a people to God's people. Praise is due to the one who dwells in Zion, a city whose chief cornerstone is the very propitiation for our sin. Very big word. 1 John 4.10. Please flip over there real quick. 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
He paid the penalty for our sins, the very chief cornerstone. What is true love? Is to take what you deserve. And, and in that offering of Jesus Christ, he not only paid the penalty for our sins, but he gave us his righteousness. And he is the chief cornerstone. The foundation of Zion was established by God himself. Isaiah 28, 16 says, who, who laid the cornerstone in Zion? Who established the whole plan of, of his eternal kingdom? Who, who planned it all? God did. Isaiah 28, 16 says that he laid the cornerstone. It was his plan. He alone is the one that is worthy of all praise. God established his kingdom, and he continues to build it. Go back to uh, Psalms 85 or 65 with me in verse 2. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. So he, he talks about praising this God in Zion, this God that's worthy of all of our praises, who dwells in this holy city where praise is awaiting him, praise is looking to, to burst out and glorify him because he's so good, because he's building his city, because of everything he's done. And then it, it gives a title to God. Oh, you who hear prayers. One another reason to praise God. Again, I, I'm hoping to just continually give you reasons to be thankful, grateful, and to praise God through this song. He hears prayers. That's a title he gives here. God is a God who hears prayers. And I'm guessing there's a few of you have already, when I was reading this and sat and thought about it, the first thing I thought of was 1 Kings chapter 18. When uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you want, go over there, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's look at the difference between our God that we serve, the true and living God, the one that hears prayers, and all these false gods in the world. There's a big difference. Not just that they're not even real. But that our God hears prayers. Look at 1 Kings 18, verse 26. Speaking of these prophets of Baal, Elijah is up there having a basically a contest with whose God is true. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar and they, that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them crying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This passage for me is very real. I've seen voodoo uh, ceremonies in Haiti and it's some of it can be very similar to this. And if you've ever been around these type of pagan 
heathen, wicked worshiping. I mean, people falling on the ground and flopping around and, and cutting themselves with the whole goal of contacting their gods. And they even believe that they have contacted some god in the midst of these ceremonies. They're cutting themselves. It says they're limping around the fire. They're, 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 they're yelling out and screaming to him. And it says here in, how long did it go from morning until noon? Saying, O Baal, answer us. It's a really a sad statement. Twice it says, but there was no voice. No one answered. And in verse 29 it says, As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Our God is different. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the, of the Lord that they had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. God heard his prayer. God listened. That's a, that story there, uh, that uh, account, is a stark contrast to false gods and our God. Our God hears our prayers. False gods, you can do anything you want. They're, they're cutting themselves, rolling around, acting like fools. And it says, no one answered. No one paid attention. When you call out to God, when you pray to God in the quietness, in difficult times, and every time you call out to God, he hears your prayers. Psalm 145, let's, verse 18. God hears our prayers. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. When we call out to God in prayer, he hears our prayers. 
We're promised that in the Bible. This is God's word. It is true. And when you call out to him, he hears your prayer. God doesn't turn a deaf ear on, on us. I'm, a, I'm not a great father sometimes. My children will be talking, and in all the noise of my house, they're calling out, Dad, I need this, I need this, I need this. And I, they'll be talking to me for five minutes, and I don't respond because I'm, I'm not even noticing them. There's so much going on. It's easy for that to happen in my house. But even so, it's, sometimes I don't hear their prayers. In the chaos of this world, again, we're, we're in the midst of a time. It's not new. Our, our, our uh, human race since the time of creation, has been through difficult times before. And in the, in the midst of all this chaos and all the people the crying out to God, he still hears your prayer. It describes him as, oh, you who hear prayers. You hear prayer. We have confidence that God hears our prayers. Isaiah 65, 24, it speaks of this. Before they even call, I'll answer. God is all-knowing. He even knows how to answer your prayer before you ask it. Philippians 4, 6 commands us to make our requests known to God. So my question is this. Why would we be told to do this if he wasn't listening? Why would the Bible tell us, Make your requests known to God if he wasn't going to hear them. God hears our prayers. That should comfort you. If you're, you're struggling or you're having a difficult day or maybe you're worrying, maybe you're caught up in all the craziness that's going on in the world around you, call on God. Not only does he hear our prayers, but he's the only one that can do anything about it. And then it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, you remember how I was just talking about God and Zion building this holy city and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and he dwells in this place and, and, and the, the temple God dwelled in this holy of holies that only the priest could access through sacrifices. He hears our prayers and in Hebrews it says that we can come boldly before his throne of grace. You know, we don't have to, uh, with trepidation, come before him. We come before him with reverence. But we can come into his courts. We can come before him, before that throne of grace, boldly, because Jesus Christ, that chief cornerstone, made the way for us. He offered a sacrifice that opened the way for us to enter in because you cannot go into the presence of God in an unholy way. And Christ cleansed us, gave us his righteousness, and offered us a way in to the presence of God. He hears our prayers, and he invites us in and tells us to come before him, pray to him. Way too often as Christians, prayer is a last resort. It's not a first resort. We try to fix everything, then we go in prayer. Pray to God. He hears your prayers. And the second part of that says, all flesh comes to God. And this is a, a, 
And all the commentaries that I was reading on this verse, it talked about this being a great foreshadowing. Remember, this was written way before Christ. And the people of God at this time were the people that God chose out the nation of Israel, right? And here it says, all flesh comes to God. It's a wonderful foreshadowing of this kingdom of God, which we've been pondering with relation to Zion and this dwelling place of God and this holy temple that he's building. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of that. It looks to a time when people that weren't just Israelites, the Gentiles would be added in. It would no longer be just the people of God that were the Israelites, but even the Gentiles, everybody, those that were on the outside, those that the, the Israelites looked at, like, you're no good. There, there's no way. There was no way for you to be made right with God. All people, all nations could be made right with God. John 12.32 says what? Let's just go look at it. It says, I'll draw all people to myself. Speaking of this chief cornerstone, he says, he says this very thing. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Not just those chosen people that God brought out and made his people through Abraham and carried them through, but then Christ came and he drew all people to himself. Remember when you, when you go through studies about why was Christ uh, crucified, one of the things was that they were very upset that that they, they uh, um, talked about all people coming to him. They didn't, they didn't like that, right? People didn't want to, the thought that you could come and save people. Uh, Paul was, was ridiculed for the Gentiles. The Gentiles can't come to Christ. But all the way back in Psalms is talking about all flesh can come to him. And another part of that is this. We're talking about being redeemed, right? And nothing we could do could make ourselves right with God. All flesh, as wicked and sinful as we are, can come to God through Christ. You ever have anybody tell you, a lot of people can get saved. A lot of people can be made right with God. I've, I've went way over the edge. I, I'm way too bad to ever be made right with God. You ever, you ever hear anybody say that? In Christ, that's not true. We can, all flesh, everybody can come to Christ, can come to God through the blood of Christ. Everybody can be made right. Revelations chapter 7, verse 9. It's a wonderful picture. The great multitude. It said, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's a beautiful picture. That Christ is going to draw people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, people from all over this planet, all of his creation, he's going to pull people from everywhere 
and bring them in to his kingdom, to build his kingdom. Remember, what, what was my goal in reading through this was to cause you to praise God, to glorify God, right? God didn't just die for a select number of people, like the, the, just the Americans or just the you know, Central Americans or just a certain nation. He came that all people could come together and worship him. There's only one thing that separates people. You want to solve all the race issues going on in the world? Read this verse and realize, man, God doesn't delineate based on nations and race and ethnicities. God delineates off of, are you wicked and in your sin, or are you redeemed and in Christ? That's the only two delineations God has. And those that are still in their sins are cast out. Those that are in Christ are in this picture here in heaven with him worshiping the lamb. That's the only two groups of people there are ever. And we can praise God because of that. Let's go to back to Psalm 65 and look at verse 3. Read all the praises due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. I like the way that's written because it reminds me, he doesn't say if. He says when. When iniquities prevail against me. It's a song of praise because in 1 John 2, 1, it says what? We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. We have an advocate that uh, the former church I was, I was at, the pastor used to repeat uh, all the time, what is Christ doing right now? He used to say that all the time, and it was such an encouragement to me. Remember we say God is the one that hears prayer? What does Hebrews say God is doing right now? It says, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Iniquities will prevail against us. There, there, there are going to be times where we get caught up in our desires, and our passions and sin. But we have an advocate Jesus Christ, that not only redeemed us, not only saved us, but he's sitting by the Father right now, interceding on our behalf. I would say that should be a cause of great joy, great praise, great encouragement to know that not only the one that redeemed us, also, the Bible says, created all things by him and through him were all things created, so he all things were created by him. He redeemed us, gave his life for us, is going to come back for us someday, but right now he's sitting in heaven interceding on our behalf. Should give us 
great cause to praise him. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Verse 7 and 8. And what does he do? When the iniquities prevail against me. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have this advocate who is praying for us, interceding for us, and through his blood, cleansing us of all sin. You may very well sin tomorrow. It's, it's likely. And when that happens, this is something I hope you do. First, I hope it breaks you and you, you feel terrible about it. And you go to him and you ask for forgiveness. And it's guaranteed that he will forgive you, right? But the other thing I hope it does is it causes you to reflect on how good he is. It reminds you of the gospel. You know, sometimes, I know that sounds like what I'm saying is, I hope you go sin so you'll think about Jesus. This is not what I'm saying. <laughs> Don't get that wrong. What I'm saying is, if that happens, or when you do, one way to use that for good is to use it as a reminder of just how great Christ is how wonderful he is. He doesn't, you go to him and you say, I've sinned, man, I'm really blue at this time. And you recognize that sin. You go to him humbly and he doesn't deny you. He doesn't turn you away. He forgives that sin. It's in the blood. It's forgiven already, right? And it should remind you and cause you to praise him, remind you of what he's done for you, remind you of the gospel, remind you that there's nothing you can do to earn this salvation. And again, praise him. Praise him. Use that to praise him. Use that for good. When iniquities prevail and we see our sinfulness in light of God's holiness, when we are overcome with our constant inability to keep his commandments, then we take heart. Then we look to Jesus, who's described as the author and finisher of our faith, right? He not only instigates our faith, the author, but he finishes it as well. We're guaranteed of that. He will conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Sin and the recognition of it in our lives is a glorious opportunity to be reminded of the amazing grace and mercy which has been given to us. We remember that sin is a great wickedness that required the death of our dear Savior who overcame sin and granted us new life in him. Sin is a terrible, wicked thing, but it can be used for good in that way to remind us of God's goodness. And how great he is. Rod, if, you, if you're hearing these words and you can't fathom the idea of being fully satisfied in Christ, of being content in him and praising him, if you 
sense a constant pull for something different or better, perhaps you truly haven't met this chief cornerstone yet. He promises that he is the bread of life, the river of living water, the almighty savior, the great eternal host of heaven. If you're dead in your sins and controlled by the desires of your flesh, if you have yet to be brought into the great and wonderful family of God, I beg you to do so quickly. If you find yourself hearing what I'm talking about tonight and you're not able to feel some sense of praise for God, your eternal state is not a good one. It will be defined by suffering and a desire for relief. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man had everything he ever wanted, and Lazarus was at his gate and suffered the whole time. And when they went to heaven, or Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, it said, the rich man was suffering in hell, and it said there was one thing that he wanted. It said, if you could just send him to dip his finger in water and, and touch my tongue, then I would be happy. It was, it was that great of a, of a uh, place of suffering for him. If, if you can't hear about Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and, and feel some sense of joy, then the all likelihood is you're in that place of that rich man that someday is going to enter in to eternity and you'll consider a drop of water on your tongue a good thing. It'll be, it'll be such a place of, of torment and suffering. I beg you tonight, turn to Christ, repent of your sins, and trust in him. If you are fully satisfied in the Lord, if you're fully, you hear these words, you think about Christ, and you're, you're encouraged by it, and, and you're, You feel a sense of praise welling up in you. If if you hear about the God building this temple and putting you in it, and you're encouraged by that, then praise him. Praise him. Tell somebody about him. Praise his holy name. Meditate on it. Don't allow the trials and the difficulties of this world to get your head down and cause you to be depressed and despondent. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look to the one that is the chief cornerstone. Look to God in Zion and praise him. The Lord of Zion is good and he's worthy to be praised. The rest of this psalm goes into that. It talks about his his goodness, his nature in creation, his nature and his goodness in providing for us. If, you, if your belly has been filled today, if you have a place to lay your head down, if you take another breath, right now you've taken a breath of air that you did not create, then God has been good to you. Praise him. Praise him for that. Praise him for the heartbeat that you have right now. Praise him for his goodness. Praise God. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness. 
your kindness to us. Thank you that you chose us and added us into your family apart from anything we've done. We don't deserve it, God, at all. Thank you that you made a way for us to be made reconciled to you despite our sin, our wickedness, and running from you from the moment we've been born. Praise you, God. We thank you. Thank you for your word that we can meditate on your works and be built up, be encouraged, and be given the mind of Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us to live for you. Help us to proclaim your excellencies as we go from this place. You are good, Lord, and worthy of our praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.